Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. And welcome. You have tuned into episode number 197 of Linux in the Ham Shack. I'm your host, Russ K5TUX. Sitting across from me, we have Cheryl W5MOO. Hello, everyone. And out in no longer covered up by the shadow of the moon, Montana, we have Bill NE4RD. Good evening, everyone. So, how close to totality were you? Uh, we were at like 93.3%, I think. So he got about the same as we did. Yeah, we were 94.6%, which what I've seen of people who have taken photographs from a place where they had 100% totality, anything less than 99.9 is useless. If you're ever thinking about viewing an eclipse, you know, not from your own QTH, go find a place where there's totality because it's just not worth it unless you see the whole thing. Uh, Because I tried to take a time lapse with my GoPro and the GoPro was so good at figuring out the light levels that it doesn't look like anything happened at all. I did get a couple of pictures with the camera. I got one really spectacular picture, and I couldn't figure out how to recreate it. There was some combination of uh, filters and, you know, aperture and and various settings, that, and it came out perfectly, and I could not duplicate it. So I got, yeah, we just I got, used the, the pinhole and the paper and a, and a hole in the box thing. And that worked pretty well. And then we went outside and uh, was sitting on the deck while uh, it was about 90%. And we noticed all the uh, crescent reflections on the uh, building next door. The house next door was just covered with it because of the trees create these little holes, pinholes of light. And uh, it was just a really cool effect. I saw some pictures of that online and stuff like that. And it was kind of neat to show the kids because they were kind of excited about it. But and they just wanted to experiment anyway. My daughter was totally freaked out. She did not want to look anywhere out because they had like totally scared her about, you're going to burn your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so she was like huddling under the blanket the whole time. It's like, oh, I can't look out. And I'm like, look, just look outside. It's, you know, the weird, the light is so weird looking, you know, it's, it's kind of, that's what I always remember. The last, last time I saw one was, you know, whatever, back in the, 70s or something like that and i just remember how eerie the light looked yeah it gets super flat and and sort of dim and everything turns kind of gray but uh, like i said my gopro was just a little too good at its job um i really needed to put some filters on it but i didn't have any way to do that i got to see cool. it you know with my own eyes yeah and see i stayed inside thinking you're gonna have great pictures i could really see later yeah i was really hoping i had great pictures not so much <laughs> <laughs> All right, so with that, we need to move on, press on, power on, soldier on to segment number one, amateur radio topics for tonight. So let's talk about cheap Chinese radios. Cheap Chinese radios, knockoffs or innovation. So I was uh, I was dumpster diving into Reddit this week and ran across a post entitled Chinese version of uh, Elecraft, Elecraft KX2, talking about the HF plus 50 megahertz, so it's HF and six meters, X5105 by Shigu. Uh, now the radio is not exactly like the KX2, but rather it's a, it's a portable rig in the same little square flat box style as like the KX2 and the FX4A and the LD11 and all those little 
tiny QRP rigs. But the the title got me thinking about we we know about these these truths in the market of the Chinese marketplace where they you know put up these fake Apple stores and they put up you know they make fake iPhones and fake everything <laughs> and there's even the blatant copies whether or not that's you know a copy or you know acceptable use of open source projects like uh, the uh, MCHF rig that M0NKA has out, which is basically open source hardware, open source software. But this uh, Chinese company is uh, is basically manufacturing them now. And uh, they were selling them on eBay, but I found out that the, there's a link on uh, Amazon to sell them as well. So yeah, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't really wrap my head around whether that's a, this is a good or a bad thing for the hobby. Um, what do you think about all these little knockoff rigs? I don't know. I think they might be good for the hobby in a way, but they really tend to be a knockoff in the truest sense of the word and the fact that they don't really work like the originals. They just look like them. So I kind of am leaning toward they're a bad thing. I think we talked about this maybe before your time on the show, Bill, but we uh, talked about like the Baofengs and stuff like that. And I remember a an episode of Top Gear where they were talking about Chinese made car knockoffs and they were showing some examples. There were two cars they were showing. One was a BMW something and another one was a a copy of like a Russian car, like a Lada or something like that. And yeah. these were like exact copies, except the Chinese car was called like the X sixty one seven three two one TIU or something like that. <laughs> but it was the exact same thing as like a BMW M three. Apparently, this happens all the time. The Chinese replicate things and do them poorly with lower-grade electronics or lower-grade parts and stuff like that, sell them for dirt cheap. And then when the companies who make the original equipment go to sue them, they basically have to sue them in China, and the Chinese government says, hey, they don't look anything alike to me, so... <laughs> you know, and then they go on. Yeah. So that's- well, I think these, uh, this, this Shigu radio, the, the 5105... You know, it it kind of looks like a, you know a KX two or KX three, but I don't think that was actually the intention. Although, I mean, I mean, if you look at everything, like even the FX four by L and R Precision, kind of looks like a KX two. I mean, if you think about the flat square, you know, rectangle box format. Um, but uh, you know, they have some other rigs. I mean, the I can think of what the XG one hundred eight and uh, whatever the very first one was which I had the very first one, which I really wasn't happy with it. But I, I hear there's like a lot of good reviews on their little 108 uh, radio. This is a new series of radio uh, radio coming out with um, uh, surprisingly a pan adapter, kind of like the, uh, you know, the PX3. <laughs> and uh, I think they're going to come out with a, uh, an amplifier for it too. But uh, anyway, it's, it's just real interesting. You know, the, the whole story on the MCHF thing is completely different because that is, truly like an open source project somebody has taken the full open source project built it and is offering up as a basically a fully assembled product uh still calling it and the mchf so i'm not sure where that one lies well i guess it's, it's interesting nonetheless it probably follows the same logic where if it's called the mchf and whatever company it's or country it's made in and then in China, they call it the MCHF. The Chinese government will simply say, well, that doesn't sound at all the same to me. So, <laughs> Well, this guy's, of course, he's in, he's in England, so. Right. 
he'd have to go find that on his own. But uh, I saw a blog post out like a, about a month ago when that that rig first surfaced as a as a product on eBay, and uh, that's why I wanted to kind of just bring it up again in the same thing because it is an open source hardware and software. Well, if it's open source and they're making a a product based on the open source model, then I don't see any issue with that. I mean, it's it's put out there for that reason. Yeah. So I think that one might fit in a little different place. But um it's still yeah, it's it's still kind of irked the author somewhat. Um and I can understand why, especially depending on the open source license that was used in the distribution of the original product. I mean, they might be violating some sort of you know, copy lefting or something, but uh, yeah. without d- delving deeper into that, I'm not sure we can address that. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting topic. I guess uh, maybe we'll get some feedback and hear what other people have to say about whether Chinese knockoffs or any knockoffs, whether it's an open source project or not, is a good thing for the hobby. I'd be curious to hear. Uh, I'm going to lean towards no, sort of like a 45, 55, uh, slightly to the no for me personally, because I think a lot of high quality American products are, are losing market share because they're coming in at maybe twice the price of a Pofung, you know, something like that. And when someone who's out there looking specifically at price and not really quality, that seems like a bad thing to me. All right. So we probably need to move on from that. And you recorded uh, an interview, which we're going to play a little excerpt of here. So do you want to set this up before I hit the button? Yeah, sure. I, I was uh, interviewing a, a, what I found to be a listener, uh, Brian McDaniel, N4AE, about amateur radio and uh, radio scouting. He's a big radio scouter, and uh, so I was kind of interviewing him for AR Newsline and, and KTBSA, but uh, we started talking about you know, youth in, in amateur radio and, and how, you know, how to interest the youth and stuff like that, which kind of goes on our topic in the last episode. I kind of segmented out this little excerpt where we kind of delve into solving the, the, the finding the face of the youth in the amateur radio. So with that, go right ahead. Well, my name is Brian McDaniel N4AE and I'm the trustee of K nine RSR, which is the official scout radio station at rainbow council in Illinois. I I want to reflect back on um, what you were talking about the various interests of the boys at, at different ages, how you said like the older boys are, are more interested in the mechanics and, and stuff like that. And the younger boys are interested in talking, mm-hmm. you know, recently we just had uh, a chatter in the news about uh, the AWRL's president talking about, uh, you know, looking out at the face of amateur radio and how to get youth involved and that the youth just really isn't interested in the hobby. And, and I, I couldn't disagree with that more. <laughs> Having you know the experience I've had, I'd I'd just like to hear what uh, you know maybe your reflection on on the youth and and their interest and what you actually bring out to like jamboree on the air or, or what you bring out to troop and, and district events and and what kind of uh, what kind of impact do you think um, the various technologies or less technologies have on their interest in uh, amateur radio. I think that if, if we had a real simple answer for that one, we probably would all be pretty rich because it's a complicated, complicated question or a complicated answer. What we've done is we, we always bring a digital station and we always have a phone station. So the the older boys like the computers. They don't know that it's hooked up to a radio. They just like, what's that computer doing? I want to go check that out. And they come in and we sit in and that's when we, we talk with them and then we let them 
have a keyboard to keyboard conversation with someone else. And they go, oh, that's that's really cool. And we kind of we kind of dumb it down a little bit and call it texting over the radio. And they get that. They understand that the older boys just love being able to grab that microphone, that 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 sensory component of squeezing the mic, talking, letting it go and then having somebody, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away talk to you on the other end. But I think where the hobby actually needs to think about things is that the kids are single users with a phone. Okay, so we've heard that example an awful lot. But if you look at other areas where communication is going on, you've got the public safety realm. They're making their communication systems a heck of a lot more simple to deploy for that fireman or police officer in the field. If you look at the military, they're making it a tremendously more easy thing for a, a soldier to be able to have con- you know, communication and accurate data all the way back to you know, command and control. Gone are the days where you need specific, you know, people to come in and set up stations. And so I think that as technology improves and as ham radio begins to adapt into that technology, let's look at DMR. Let's look at the satellite components. Let's look at some of the things that are simple user in type, you know, technology. I think that that's where you can find a relevant space for people. Um, I don't think that, and and it's controversial to say that. I, I get it. I understand. I can, you know, I'm a CW operator, you know, licensed back when you had to have the code. I, I hope I have earned my props. But I also recognize that my own son, you know, who's in this age group, you know, can go and get the sum of all human knowledge right there in his hand. And that's an extremely difficult thing to compete with. And that's the problem. We think that we're competing against telephone technology or Internet technology. No, we're competing as a realm of giving them avenues to develop new ways of communicating. It's the focus, I think. And if the hobby wants to be relevant and get licenses, well, we can do things like that. But I think that if you go back to the experimentation, if you go back with problem-solving if you go back to a little bit more, um, you know, developing things that are going to be practical and usable, I think that's where you're going to find the younger generation more interested in what we have to offer. Look at the Raspberry Pi. Look at the Arduino. Those are great technologies that the kids are going in and learning code on today, which I think is, you know, even in your own wheelhouse. And all you have to do is a very little bit of modification to a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino, and all of a sudden you have a radio transmitter. And now you're able to maybe put a mesh together with other Arduinos, or you're able to control something, or a drone, or or send video from one side of the neighborhood to the next. It's it's the experimentation and the real-world application that I think that the kids find more interesting. Otherwise, a PSK station with you know a, a dipole hanging up there is kind of a museum piece in their mind. It's great technology. It's a wonderful way of doing things. But showing them the practical of, you know what, what do we need to do to take some video and have your friend on the other side of the neighborhood be able to see it? You can't do, yeah, you can text it, of course, you can stream it. But what what will we do without those things? And then you begin to remove those barriers and the kids begin to problem solve. And I think that that's when you actually find out some really, really interesting challenges. Scouting does this very, very well because they will come in and say, okay, scouts, 
you've got to make breakfast. Let's get started. And it's boy led. You know, we're, we're there to make sure that no one gets injured or hurt or killed. But at the same time, we're also mentoring them. Well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? I think if ham radio took on a little bit more of a mentoring style in that arena, then you would probably see a little bit more adaptation. You know, I can sit down with a radio and talk to someone in Canada while I'm out, you know, camping in, in Wisconsin. They all find that really neat and cool. But how does that really apply to them? Well, you know what? Let's figure out a way that when we're hiking and you are out two miles from our base, how are you going to communicate back to the area? Because this area doesn't have very good cell service. What are you going to do? That's when you begin to actually show them the hobby as a tool. And I think that's what it is. It's a tool, just like a phone. It's an entertainment center, yeah, but it's a tool. It's a communications platform, and we just need to begin to think of it the way they think of it, as a tool, not as a hobby, if that makes any sense. Think of it when you and I were the age of the scouts now, okay? So we're, you know, I I would have been a teenager in the 80s, and that was when the Apple II was basically coming out. The Macintosh hadn't hit, really. You were dealing with an 8088 IBM you might have been on DOS 5 if you were lucky, or 3. <laughs> 323, right? <laughs> 323, exactly. Yeah, I know how I can, ba- I can batch code with the best of them. <laughs> um, but, but that was ham radio to us and to my generation. My parents' generation, my dad was licensed in the 1950s. They were trying to work. They were working with tubes. They didn't have the computer technology. That was their internet of that period. And I think that it's just an evolution. You know, ham radio hasn't suffered, I think, amongst our generation. We've introduced new, you know, there have been new modes that have cr- been created as a result of our interaction with computers. We want to, you know, go back to packet in the 90s or the digital stuff today. You know, the digital modes are, you know, everyone said, oh, the code is going to be, you know, the death of, of, you know, if we don't have code, it's going to be the death of the hobby. Well, the biggest growth in traffic on the on the um, HF bands, at least according to Club Log, has been digital modes, you know. At the expense of phone. And why exactly. is that? Because, and, and that's because the license at the entry level technician doesn't give you that HF phone privilege. Okay, that's an argument for a different day. But people are getting those technician licenses and they're using digital and they're using it where they can, six meters and up. The, the folks that are interested in it that are trying to make something of it are going to figure out a way to make the hobby relevant to them. And today's generation isn't going to look at radio teletype the way it was done as the method of using it they're going to try to figure out how they're going to be able to stream video and audio you know from one location to the next and i think that's an extremely exciting use of technology and i don't think that ham radio could be better situated as a platform uh, for folks to experiment that way yeah exactly but, uh, I mean, I hope I'm not saying too many things that are just way off the beaten path. I mean, this is just kind of truly the way I, I look at the hobby. I, I recognize that, you know, you've got an awful lot of people that are getting their licenses and they're having a very difficult time and they're challenged on how to use them. And I think that, you know, if you're able to begin to work with them to explore new avenues, take the things that they're already doing with, you know, with computers or with other technology, you know, I think that that's a great platform in which to to connect the two hobbies, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I know you got to run, so I'm going to let you go, sure. and uh, okay. I'll see what I can okay. uh, do with this, and I appreciate okay. your time today. Hey, Bill, not a problem. I, I definitely appreciate it. Like I said, I'm sorry if I went too far afield in some of the areas. I just wanted to promote the, you know, the concept on the radio scouting, so... Uh, 
But thanks, thanks so much for, for indulging me. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You have a great weekend. The thing that I picked out of there was somewhere around the four-minute mark. He was talking about how the hobby needed to be more of an Elmering hobby. And I know yeah. we talk about that all the time. It's like, and we say that's that's what the hobby should be, and that's that's what we should all be doing is helping people get into the hobby. And I kind of felt like the hobby did that, but it seems like whenever anyone talks about it, like it's not actually happening. And it's not actually happening in sort of the organized way that it's supposed to, like in clubs and stuff like that. Even they don't really Elmer. So, you know, maybe that's something we need to drive home more often, but I, I definitely picked up on that. And I did like his uh, ideas about the digital modes taking over and the, you know, the entry level license being uh, six meter and up. And that's where people take their interest to and start working on digital instead, instead of phone. And I know we did talk about some potential licensing changes going forward for the technician class. So I'm kind of hoping that comes to pass because it'd be nice to get uh, entry level hams into uh, the HF bands. Yeah, and that kind of leads us into our next story. Well, I think uh, we, I think we can let Cheryl do this next one anyway. It's pretty straightforward yeah. read. So yes, which is the Northern California DX Club launching an initiative to get newcomers on HF. Looking around the room in a local club meeting makes it very clear that we're all aging. NCDXC's John Eisenberg, K6YP said. It's critical to the ongoing life of our hobby to recruit new blood into our ranks. We all know this, but it's difficult to organize and take effective action to start programs to, to introduce new people to the joys of HF operating. We can't generate new DXers until we have new HF operators. NCDXC said its Elmering project is aimed squarely at the swelling in the pool of new HF operators and getting them on HF. After some introductory classes, three curriculum tracks are offered, general license exam prep, HF operating and station building, and advanced topics. Students sign up for the classes that interest them. Instruction will be at the participant's skill level. The club state classes will cover such topics as advanced HF phone, CW, and digital mode operating skills, propagation analysis, and antennas. Some classes will be taught using PowerPoint presentations delivered to a student's computer via WebEx. That's kind of cool. It did, did sort of segue nicely from the last uh, topic right into that one. And I guess it just goes to show that we all need to be better Elmers. Yeah. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) No, that follows the whole topic of Elmering and how important it is in the hobby. Yeah, it's it's most important, actually, because it's the one thing that really gets people interested in the hobby and wanting to move forward with it is the people who show enthusiasm for and are willing to help out newcomers to the hobby. That, That definitely needs to be promoted at least as much as MCOM and things like that, other things that the hobby is good for, but we have to get more people interested, and Elmering is how that happens. And that being said, we have one more topic in our amateur radio segment for tonight, and that's hammer radio operators using the eclipse that happened today for ionospheric experimentation. Like many people, Mike Neruda will be outside Monday, or was outside Monday afternoon, safely watching the solar eclipse, but he also will be listening to the eclipse. The longtime amateur radio enthusiast and electronics engineer will be one of many ham operators participating in an experiment to determine the solar eclipse's effect on the Earth's ionosphere. He'll be monitoring radio transmissions from the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Fort Collins, Colorado, listening for interruptions caused by a solar disturbance that will be detected by ham radio operators. Quote, the ionosphere is normally in a state of turmoil, Neruda said. 
but the sudden stop of that energy, we don't know what it's going to do. He said he expects it to be a year or so before the amateur radio researchers will be able to draw any conclusions from the experiment. And I got that from the Port Huron Times Herald. I was surprised there was a lot of traffic on uh, Whisper and uh, all the other propagation uh, type modes today. So if you were trying to go to WhisperNet today and took really long to load, it's because there was so many people uh, getting on there and checking it out and seeing what kind of effects the uh, the propagation was having on those modes. And if you were also trying to go to that French site that's linked to from Google Earth, which was an overlay showing the path of the solar eclipse and your percentage of totality based on your location, that site was extremely slow right before the eclipse went through. So for obvious reasons. Yes. All right. So let's move on. Let's stop talking about amateur radio for a minute and discuss some amateur radio topics like maybe some advantages of open source for the enterprise. Yeah, we have uh, an article from opensource.com that talks about the 10 advantages of open source for the enterprise. Uh, These 10 advantages are community, the power of the crowd, transparency, reliability, better security, merit-based, faster time to market, cost-effective, freedom from lock-in, and becoming the norm. A lot of these advantages, you could just think about projects that you're just outsourcing, right? You know, it's like uh, if I get something that somebody else is responsible for, I at least have plausible deniability (laughs) and, uh, you know, supposedly a better security because you don't have, you know, your own people writing code and and making holes and and having to do that type of security stuff faster to market if you're buying a commercial off-the-shelf program. Um, A lot of these things kind of ring, you know, very similar open source versus just regular, you know, commercial off-the-shelf software. But uh, it was an interesting article. It basically talks about the same stuff that most people do with open source is that, you know, you do have the crowdsource mentality. You know, if somebody runs into something, they put a fix in the software or they add a feature. Uh, stuff tends to happen at a, a little quicker pace. You know, you have a rolling release mentality. And, uh, yeah, you see a lot of companies trying to look at these things for for possible inclusion in their enterprise stack. It definitely sounds like a nice sort of list of advantages, and you could put those toward, you know, any kind of uh, thing that would help out in, in the business world. But uh, a lot of those really talk to businesses, like cost-effectiveness. You know, ROI is very important in the business world. Freedom from lock-in, I don't know that that's really that important to the business world because lots of businesses get caught up in that, so I don't know about that. Crowdsourcing, transparency, reliability, of course, better security, you know, merit, you know meritocracy, all that kind of thing, very good stuff for the enterprise. Uh, some of those may be questionable, but I guess you can debate those out in your own mind while we move on to... Uh, GNU project maintainers are wanted, and this would fall under the category of so you want to be a maintainer. I'm not sure who those people are, but uh, if you want to be one, there appear to be some projects that need help in the GNU world. For example, GNU Halifax is a project dedicated to providing free software fax client package. Does anyone still fax anymore? I guess they do. (laughs) Um, A-Spell, which is the GNU A-Spell 
Uh, spell checker designed to replace I spell bison or GNU bison is one of the key tools that makes all GNU Linux distributions possible. It's a general purpose parser generator, uh, which is what a compiler uses to make sense of source code when it's being read in. And then there's also GNU AE, which is for designing photovoltaic and wind powered houses with compliance to the national electric code. So that's kind of cool. So uh, if you feel like you're a perfect fit for some of these projects, you might want to go and express your interest and show how you uh, can be a project maintainer for some of these really cool projects. And that's a story that came from Phosphorce. This this okay. next title is really confusing, so I'm going to let you have it. Our title says, Startup finished in 3.547 seconds kernel plus 13.884 seconds user space for a total of 17.431 seconds. So, you know, does your distribution use system D? Yes, it most likely does. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why your, why your system boots slowly? You know, did you install a bunch of packages from the, uh, from the uh, apt repository or something else? Uh, there's a cool utility uh, called systemd-analyze. And uh, the key you want to use with that is system D-analyze space blame. And what this does is it lists everything that's started up on your system, starting from the longest time to the shortest time. It's it's an interesting utility, and I, I kind of ran into it uh, reading some problem-solving blog or something like that. And uh, I, I really never messed with it much, so I decided to to go ahead and run it on my computer, and that was that was my times uh, on the X220 uh, booting Ubuntu. So the slowest apps on my system happened to be the apt daily service, and that was running at about 13 seconds. And then the second slowest was the network manager wait online service at about nine seconds. The rest was uh, all at 3.3 seconds. So we linked in the in the pages, the uh, man page, but you can go ahead and search that up or just run it on your system and take a look at it. It, uh, it definitely provides a, some interesting information uh, on your particular installation. Yeah, I might have to check that out. Although I have, you know, for all of the machines that I've actually installed or have been upgraded to systemd, they all boot much faster than they used to with the sysv init. You know, dependency-based booting seems to be the way to go. Uh, for all the bitching I did about System D early on, but um, it definitely seems to be much better than it used to be, except in the case when the System D startup scripts are basically just converted SysB init scripts, and that can cause all kinds of weirdness and problems and delays and things like that. So uh, here's a great utility to kind of see where your system is hanging up during the boot cycle. Uh, so you have some sort of insight into that and maybe you can get some help and get it fixed and get it to boot up quickly. So moving on, we're going to talk about Linux in the ham shack. And uh, since Bill likes to do a lot of dumpster diving on both GitHub and Reddit, uh, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about some GitHub. Yeah, we're GitHub in, in the ham shack. So uh, today I ran across uh, three projects that I thought were of some, some interest. Uh, the first one was uh, NCVEC. Amateur Radio Question Pools in JSON format by Jason Staten. So the amateur radio question pools are made available by the NCVEC, uh, but they're not available in an easily consumable format. They're just in uh, documents. So uh, what this project did was convert the Word docs to uh, parsed JSON. So they're now freely available in a free and unencumbered license. 
And uh, you can now, uh, you know, consume this for your own little application, maybe, you know, making your own ham test app or whatever you want. So uh, take a look at that. Um, the second one was the called The Great Hambino by Chris Ward. And uh, this is just an early start of a project that he's doing uh, of a React-driven ham radio reference application. So we'll be watching this to see what this turns into. But uh, I thought I'd go ahead and mention it in there because he seems to be uh, crafting it all right now, and it's pretty active. Uh, the third one I ran into was called Radio Berry, and it's a ham radio cape for the Raspberry Pi by Johan, PA3GSB. And the main purpose of the project was building a ham radio and learning from noob to guru. And the Radio Berry consists of a Raspberry Pi 2 Model B and a radio extension board cape using the AD9866 uh, for RX and TX modes. So those are three little projects that uh, have some recent activity on GitHub that you may want to look at. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And actually, in the chat room, I was talking with uh, KB2YSI. He was in the chat room earlier today talking about the fact that he was installing a WhisperNet cape on a Raspberry Pi in his office or in his home, whichever, uh, and explaining all the problems he had with that about how the cape didn't fit in his box, didn't fit against the heat sink, didn't fit against all kinds of other things. And then apparently he got all of that stuff worked out, got the cape installed, and then it didn't work. He didn't wind up on WhisperNet. Yeah, he wasn't getting any. uh, Yeah, wasn't getting any hits on WhisperNet. So, all right. Well, hopefully he gets that figured out. There's a lot of great new projects, and especially some caps and hats and stuff that are being made for the Raspberry Pi boards and and other uh, single board computers uh, that do some really cool things. So that's nice. And this actually, the RadioBerry actually comes with hardware and software, right? Yeah, it's a it's a basically how to put the whole project together. Right, so very cool, and uh, Johan is from the Netherlands, if I remember correctly, so that's a project out of there, very cool. And I was going to go back a second to the question pool in JSON format, which is very nice, because now that you have that data in a standards-based format, lots of programming languages and APIs have methods for importing importing and exporting standards-based formats like JSON, so you can use that in lots of different ways. And if you wanted to use or create, for example, your own question pool application, you now have access to that data in a standards-based format. So it'd be very easy to use in whatever project you have going on instead of something stupid like Microsoft Word format. So <laughs> lastly, I wanted to bring up CloudLog again because I saw it come up in my feed about information about CloudLog. It hasn't had a lot of major development in the last little bit. And we talked about CloudLog at least somewhat back in episode number 179. And I think back then, Bill, you had installed it. uh, Yeah. And I just, I just checked it because I I saw you had this in the, in the the show notes today. And, uh, and of course it's not running. I remember I tried upgrading it. One of the, one of the upgrades and it uh, apparently failed. So (laughs) I never got back to it. So I actually installed it here today uh, the latest version of it, and it actually works really well. Uh, I had to do a little craziness getting mine to install, but the the procedure is actually very simple for CloudLog. I don't remember how what, deeply we went into it when you did it back last December, but um, when I did it, it was really simple. You just have to have a web server running. You clone the Git repo into a directory that's accessible via the web. You go to that 
URL slash install, and it does the installation procedure for you. That assumes a MySQL database, but it actually supports MySQL and Postgres and SQLite, and I think there are actually a couple other options as well. But it's pretty straightforward install, and then once you do that, it comes set up with a demo account, which is an administrator. You go in there, you create your own account, remove the demo account, and then you're pretty much good to go. And then, of course, it has a, a side project written by a different developer called CloudCat, which actually integrates cat control of your rig with CloudLog. And the reason I really like CloudLog is because it's PHP-based and it uses a web server, so you can access it from any location that has network connectivity, which gives you that sort of distributed feel of something like N1MM. It's not a straight-up contest logger, uh, but you could probably use it as one if you wanted to. It has a lot of nice features, the imports, the exports, and all of the great things that you know standard loggers do. And the reason this popped up in my feed uh, as of late uh, is support for the FT8 mode was added. So you can now log FT8 contacts. And there was also something about new or improved connectivity for, I think it was satellite rotator control or something like that that was also uh, recently updated. So uh, if you want to check that out, it's really easy to install. You can do it, of course, on a local machine, even though it's web-based. You can run a local web server and a local uh, MySQL server, and it will work just fine. If you want to check that out, check out that project over at GitHub called CloudLog. And let me go look it up real quick and see who was developing it. 2E0SQL. Yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty active on Twitter. And that's his, uh, I believe that's his handle on Twitter too. So you can find him there. He's a pretty active satellite uh, communicator. All right, very good. CloudLog, great project. Check it out. Right before the show, I tried to get to installing Log for OM in code weavers you know in uh, crossover it's written in c sharp which means it needs net to run and i have not yet figured out how to force crossover to install dependency things like net into a bottle where it's necessary so as soon as i figure that out i'm going to install log for om and give that you know a real go your uh, bottle with um n1 and mm should have it it probably should, but for my own peace of mind, I'd like to figure out how to install things oh, like okay. .NET yeah. into a bottle so I can do it uh, going forward and so kind of give that information out. Because uh, that would be a nice thing to know. Because if Crossover actually knows about the project you're trying to install, it will actually have a link to the install file and all the dependencies, and it will do all that stuff for you. But if it's something like Log4OM that it doesn't know about, but it does require some Windows dependencies, like, for example, .NET or, you know, ActiveX or something like that, it won't do it by default. There are obviously ways to get it to do it. I just don't know what they are. So Yeah, sometimes the installer will actually uh, prompt the OS to install it. Yes, that's true. Sometimes the installer will actually call for you to click and download the necessary resources, but in the case of Log4OM, that did not happen. But I would like to try it, and I would like to give uh, you know some sort of insight into whether or not it works under Linux, since it is a Windows-only application. But uh, we'll have to save that for next time. Alrighty. All right, so with that, we are done with our uh, initial topics for the evening, so we're going to move on to the music. And the music for this week is a song by Jason Kinney and the Jason Kinney Band. 
And this is a threesome that, uh, I shouldn't say threesome, this is a uh, three-piece band that uh, I saw a couple of weeks ago. And when we here at Studio 3D have our concert in October, they will be playing here. So we're looking forward to that. I got a copy of their first CD release that was actually put out in 2014. Uh, Jason Kenny and his band kind of disappeared for a little while, but now they're coming back and they really want to get their music out there. So he gave me a disc and I said, well, I have a podcast where I play music. And he said, make sure that you play this and give it to everybody. Uh, if you want a copy of it, I have free reign to give copies of it. You can get some of the tracks at Reverb Nation. Uh, and of course, you can buy them if you uh, want to support the artist, which I highly recommend. Uh, at places like CD Baby uh, and others. So anyway, as he gave me permission to play his music, I'm going to do that. So this is a song called Plantin' Seeds uh, from the 2014 release called Jason Kinney by Jason Kinney. And this comes courtesy of Jason Kinney. So let's listen to this. It runs about three and a half minutes, and then we'll talk about some more stuff.
that was Plant and Seeds by Jason Kinney from back in 2014. So if you like that, you should definitely check out the album. You can go buy it at CD Baby, and I think it might be on iTunes too. You can find a couple of demo tracks on Reverb Nation. So definitely uh, get a hold of that, and I can't wait for them to come out and play here uh, in late October. That's going to be so much fun. Good music there. So, moving on from the music, we've got segment number four, which is our announcements and feedback. We didn't have any feedback for this particular episode, but I did have one announcement. I don't remember if we've alluded to this before, but anyone who's been paying attention to the dates over on the website will notice that there's a pretty big gap uh, between episode number 200 and episode number 201. Uh, Episode number 200 is going to be recorded on October 2nd of this year. And uh, once we get done recording that episode, we're going to be going on hiatus for a little bit. We're uh, not going to be coming back to record episode number 201 uh, until the first part of 2018, on January 8th specifically. Uh, And during that time, we're going to be doing some retooling of the show. We're going to give us uh, a big, deep think and uh, see what we can do, uh, what we haven't been doing well, what we can do better, things we need to add, subtract, or whatever. So this is a perfect time if you have something you want to say about the show. Uh, I would hope that you would at least make it constructive and not just, you know, a rant. You know, send us whatever feedback you want to. We'd like to know what you think we could do better, what you might like to see as part of the show. Uh, Topic suggestions are great. Maybe ideas for segments. If you maybe want to help out in some way, you can, uh, if you have a passion for something, Uh, Maybe you can do a two or three minute segment that we can include in our program or whatever it is. Whatever thoughts you have, please let us know what they are, Uh, especially during that period between October 2nd and January 8th, because we really do want to make the show better uh, when we start into the the 200s, when we get to there. You know, I know that people who listen to the show obviously like what they hear, but, you know, there's always room for improvement. Send us feedback. Let us know what you think. I want everybody to know that, you know, even even if it's not constructive criticism, if they don't like something specific, we're not going to get mad at you. If, well. if, if, you're tired, <laughs> if you're tired of listening about Russ's whiskey or my recipes, that's fine. Just just say, you know, the recipes could go bye-bye. Nobody's going to get mad at you. So. That's right. I mean, you can be negative. Just be negative constructively. That's all. Okay. <laughs> sure. All right. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, that being said, let's talk about Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Yeah. So anyway, this is the last week of fair-related food recipes. Russ is not a big fan of either one of these, but I love them. This week, I am doing lemonade shake-ups and sausage, pepper, and onion sandwiches. So for the lemonade shake-up, you need water, sugar, and lemon juice. Requires a little bit of cooking. Of course, all this information will be in the show notes. But it's great when you're just wanting a nice glass of cold lemonade from the fridge. And the pepper and onion and sausage sandwiches, uh, you need some some peppers and some onions. Green and red bell peppers, large onion, uh, vegetable oil, and salt that you saute all those together. Cook some rope sausage cut into, you know, hot dog bun links. A little bit of beer if you want to add some beer to it. And some hoagie rolls and you... uh, Get all those puppies layered together and enjoy. So, I don't know where you got the idea that I don't like sausage, pepper, and onion sandwiches because I love those things, especially from the fair. <laughs> so, 
You don't like peppers. No, no. Uh, See, you've once again extrapolated something I said into something I didn't say. There is one place that I don't like peppers. Philly cheesesteaks. Philly cheesesteaks. And you're not a big fan of them on pizza either. No, I like them on pizza. Okay. It's it's only Philly cheesesteaks. I cannot deal with uh, green peppers on Phillies. That's so, part of the Philly cheesesteak, though. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> So they look at you weird when you're like, I want a cheesesteak, but I don't want peppers on it. And yeah, hold the hold the peppers. Yeah. yeah. And they're just like, why in the hell are you getting a cheesesteak? Because <laughs> I like everything about a cheesesteak except the green peppers. That's why. Uh, no, it makes the cheesesteak. No, no, it doesn't. It makes yes. the cheesesteak worse <laughs> no, is what it does. No, it doesn't. <laughs> then don't eat the cheesesteak. You'll be fine. No, so. I really love cheesesteaks as long as they don't have green peppers on them. Oh, whatever. So. All right, fine. So. If you like these so well, we've been to the fair last week. Why didn't you get one? Um, because I wasn't hungry. Okay, because I was. Well, so. then why didn't you get one? Because I was trying to get in line to get to a concert we were going to. Yeah, well. So. All right, enough about that. Let's move on. <laughs> so try out some more fair food. There will not be fair food in the next episode. There will be something else. Yes, I haven't decided what yet. Okay. We'll figure something out. We'll then. definitely figure something maybe, out. Maybe the uh, supreme pizza quiche that I did the other day for dinner. Yeah, that was pretty good. Or maybe a cheesesteak without peppers. Okay, oh. so. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So anyway, I'm going to move on to my whiskey corner, and I bought myself a new bottle of scotch, and I've got it right here in front of me. So I know I haven't done this one before because I've definitely not tried these before. This is an Isla Scotch. It's Bowmore 12 Year. They are listed as the first licensed distillery in Isla, uh, licensed in 1779. So they have been around quite a long time. Those Scotch people have been drunks for a long time, haven't they? <laughs> I guess so. Uh, so this is the 12-year version of the Beaumore. It's bottled at 40% uh, alcohol by volume, which is 80 proof. Uh, the color on this one, this is a chill-filtered scotch, so the color sort of remains. It's a uh, really nice, deep, rich, honey, caramel color, uh, much darker than the ones that I've been drinking lately. Of course, the color doesn't really mean much. We're just reporting here. I did my tasting notes a little bit earlier, but I'm going to drink, you know, nose it a little bit more now. And uh, what I came up with is um, smoke, of course, because this is an Isla Scotch. You're going to get the smoke and the peat and that kind of thing. But you also get like an actual fresh sea air smell, which is not something that I get from any of the other islas, which is kind of interesting. You also get that sea brine, sea salt. You get fresh hay, like fresh barn hay, dry grass, fresh barn hay kind of thing. Well, that's better than not fresh barn hay. Well, yes. Yes. You also get orange zest or citrus zest of some kind. I'm going to say orange. Uh, I saw some tasting notes that said there was a specific kind of orange that I can't remember, but I've never actually smelled or tasted one of those particular oranges, so I can't speak to that. And also at the back end and on the finish, there are some nice, soft, like fresh blossom or floral notes. Uh, Nothing really specific, but something definitely floral. Uh, The taste is similar. You get a nice sweet smoke smell. It's almost or a taste. It's almost like it's almost like the smoke has taken on kind of like the uh, mesquite, a little sugary sweetness to it, which is nice. Uh, you have vanilla flavor and honey. You have citrus, peat, and sea salt, black pepper, 
because it does actually have a little bit of zing to it, a nice black pepper finish. And that pepper and the floral notes are kind of what stays on your tongue the longest after the sweet vanilla and the peat smoke and all that kind of stuff has vanished. You get pepper and floral. It's actually very nice and very complicated because the flavors sort of come on in progression and leave in progression, which is not something I've experienced with other Isla scotches. So I actually have been really enjoying this one. But even though it's more complex than some of the other ones, I don't like it as much as some of the ones that are a little less complex but a little more peaty. So I'm actually going to give Bowmore 12 Year a score of 91 on my 0 to 100 chart. So there you go. And uh, if you want to buy a bottle of Bowmore 12, it's pretty reasonable. 750 milliliters comes in between 40 and $45. So not too bad. And that's all I have to say about that. So now it's time for the social media roundup. This week for subscriptions, we have Jonas Rulo, Thor Wiegman, Robert Doherty, James Blocker, Charlie Brown, Bill Piotr, Darren King, Todd Bowers, Kevin Murray, Alan Wilson, Stephen Harp, Ronald Ike, Wayne Carpenter, Jeremy Hall, Johnny Kinsey, Stephen Sainer, Michael Connolly, Donald Gever, John Clark, Robert Pitts, Doug Redder, Dylan Engel, John Fotchke, Robert Yerke, Paul Griffith, Christopher Weaver, Brian Smith, Michael Aiello, Robert Halliday, and Michael Jacobs. On Facebook, we had Fred Bittner join us. Nobody joined us on Google Plus this week. And on Twitter, we have Valgore55, K-A-K-T-I-S, Nico Kagman, BB underscore Pedro Martins, InfoSec Hotspot, and Valamir. Nobody joined us on YouTube. And Gary H. and K-A-A-H-D-E joined us on our mailing list. And there were no merchandise sales. And but Russ is going to get that website I done am gonna get that by done. January. <laughs> yes, yeah. I am. I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to separate the shop website from the LHS podcast website. So I, there's no cross-pollination of stuff like that. They're both going to be WordPress, but they're going to be different. I'm having some uh, problems with compatibility between some of the plugins I use and the shop software. So I wouldn't worry about it. Um, well, I'm worried about it well, in the no, sense no, that it I, doesn't work. No, no. I, what I'm saying is I wouldn't worry about having two different websites. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty normal. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I just need to do it because otherwise we're never going to have a shop that works. So, <laughs> all right. So with that being said, let's take a quick look at the chat room. Anything going on in there other than Jonas talking about the scotch? <laughs> so uh, let's see. He said, <laughs> Ted says the sound sounds, it sounds fishy. I don't know about fishy. I didn't get fishy. What, so. what was the orange that they, was it like Clementine? No, or? it wasn't Clementine. It was um, bergamot. Um, I don't personally know what the scent or taste of bergamot is, so I couldn't you know, get it's that. It's like the uh, Earl Grey taste, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. The, some of the tasting notes I saw mentioned bergamot, but like I say, I don't know what that is, so I, I can't right. you know, speak to it. I guess that's it. That means we are down to the end of the program tonight. Woo-hoo! So I can push this button here, and then I can say, you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or HamFest. 
We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail at one nine zero nine lhs show That's one nine zero nine five four seven seven four six nine. Visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on the Freenode Network and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts to wall clocks and lots of other stuff can be purchased at www.cafepress.com stroke LHS podcast. And just to be clear, a little bit of those sales help out the program. You can also help out the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. That doesn't cost you anything except a little time to click. Listen live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's early Tuesday morning at 0100 Zulu in the summertime and 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website, and that website is http colon stroke stroke lhspodcast.info, and that site contains everything you ever wanted to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and to those who have given their time, ears, shares, and funds for the show. We appreciate each and every one of you, and you all help us keep doing what we do. So, for episode number 197 of Linux in the Hamshack, I'm Russ, K5TUX, that's Cheryl, W5MOO. Thanks for listening, everyone. And from out from under the shadow of the moon, but it's still dark in Montana, NE4RD. 73, everyone. And we'll catch you all in two weeks' time. Take care, everybody. Delicious.